Emerson. Hey, Mrs. Cole. What a great time to be making a podcast about education right now. Right? I think Amazon sold right out of podcasting microphones when this pandemic started. (laughs) (laughs) How long do you think the two of us have been talking to one another about the future of schools? Man, I think since we've met each other. Was 2012? We have been, yeah, been thinking what is coming next. And you know, it's interesting because you and I have worked at really good schools, places I have loved, and yet making them better is really important to us. Such a good point. I mean, teachers and schools today are that we have worked in are just phenomenal. I wish I had gone to some of the schools that, that I have had the opportunity to work in. But there's always pieces that we talk about that we could perhaps change and that might work better. That's right. I would love to be a student today at Viewpoint. The number of courses that students can take, the small class sizes and the caring teachers, and the same with where we met back in 2012 when we were at Chandler School. But did you ever think we'd be in a global pandemic? No, I did not see that. That was not on my bingo board. Um, And it's interesting, though, as hard as it's been and as much as I wish this pandemic had never happened, I would turn it off tomorrow if I could find the off button. It has given us some opportunities to act on some of the good ideas, and it sort of sped some things up in a way. For sure. And we should probably introduce ourselves now. We're, now we're both working at Viewpoint in different roles. That's right. Roles. Who are you? <laughs> I am the, I'm the chief innovation officer at Viewpoint School. I'm in my fourth year here. And I work K through 12 for with technology integration and professional development and computer science and, um, and now podcasting. And I just started on June 1st as director of distance learning, but you called me in 2018, I think it was, when we had some ideas for doing some professional development for Viewpoint. And it's so funny to think about what the topic was of our biggest one, right? When we think about it now, we were talking about, what if we did some blended and hybrid learning? Right, right. Maybe we'll consider playing with a little bit of a flipped classroom or recording some videos, or maybe students don't always have to be at school all day. What a crazy thought that was. We actually led a workshop for teachers, had some meetings with a board committee, talked to Mr. McKee, and said, can you imagine if schools, if, if Viewpoint School didn't have students here always on campus? Sometimes some would be on campus, not all. Seemed radical. Right. (laughs) And so now is the perfect opportunity to look at how this is playing out. Yeah, and really enjoyed speaking with, speaking of the head of school, of Viewpoint School, Mark McKee, um, about the future of schools in general. I, I never used to think about studying the future of schools as a discipline in itself. We used to like to examine what schools were currently doing and read a lot about um, practices of teachers around um, the state and around the country, around the world. But to think um, what we could do specifically. Exactly. And um, enjoyed talking with um, Mark McKee, who spent some time at the Institute for the Future. Right. That came up once we started talking about this, this class. And he said, you know, I have actually studied how you think about the future as a discipline.
Um, I, I've always been a bit of a futurist as an educator. More recently, I discovered a field of futures thinking and realized that there are people who do this for a living full time. And I did get certified as um, what's called a foresight practitioner, um, someone who is trained in the field of strategic foresight um, by a group called the Institute for the Future. What were the big takeaways? Well, um, there were a number. The first is that there is a discipline to futures thinking. Um, so I used to think about um, futures thinking as just thinking about the future and like, you know, dreaming or maybe reading a science fiction book or folks who are fans of Star Wars or Star Trek might think about the future. And um, those of us old enough to have lived before the internet and before iPhones know that before there was an iPhone, there were um, Star Trek communicators that we imagined we might one day have. And then you look up and realize like, oh my goodness, um, you know, this Tesla or this iPhone is a lot like what we imagined <laughs> 30 years ago. Um, but uh, in addition to just sort of dreaming about the future or inventing it in science fiction, um, there are actual practices and a discipline to thinking about the future that people use in all fields of endeavor. Um, so particularly big corporations, um, you know, a corporation like Coca-Cola or, um, you know, a, a corporation like 3M will probably have people, General Motors, will have people who are actually um, employing the field of strategic foresight to imagine um, what uh, the world might be like 10, 20, 50 years from now. And um, I thought it was especially appropriate that Viewpoint think about that too. I'm very interested in also how you see the future of Viewpoint and the future of education in light of the pandemic. If you feel like it's an accelerant or a disruptor of a certain type that, that brings to mind what you learned in your course. It is certainly true that the pandemic has been an accelerant of many trends that were underway um, and have been underway for some time. We have been perceiving, um, all of us in the field of education, that education is fundamentally changing. And in fact, uh, there have been a number of um, phrases about that. Um, my favorite is to think about the fourth industrial revolution because most students, um, by the time they're getting into high school, learned about the industrial revolution and what it meant when steam engines came into our economy or when factories um, entered uh, the field of manufacturing. And that in fact, if you count up our industrial revolutions, um, that what we're living through right now with um, not just a world of computing, but connected computing, the internet of everything, um, that is the fourth industrial revolution, which is fundamentally changing the way we interact with the world, with one another and with knowledge, uh, changing actually the very nature of knowledge itself. And therefore schooling must change so that classrooms that really, really um, were invented a hundred years ago and in order to educate a workforce that would grow up and work in factories, and that's what's often called the factory model of education, where we have to give a lot of people a basic set of information so that they can go out into the workforce. We now need people um, who are going to be in a workforce where facts um, can be had at your fingertips anywhere and everywhere. And so what that means is that um, what becomes a priority is the creation of knowledge, the interpretation of knowledge, connecting things. 
And so two concepts I might introduce um, for your students as a starting place is to think about signals and drivers. So what are signals and what are drivers? These are two foundational concepts in futures thinking. These are signs of change. So a signal, a signal is a development or a sign that is a specific example of the future in the present. You have all had the experience, I'm sure, of seeing something and you're like, wow, that's interesting. I've never seen that before. I bet there's going to be more like that to come, okay? Anything that makes you wonder and grabs your attention and says, aha, what is that? Why is that happening? You know, um, you might see, um, for example, a regulation about drones and say like, hmm, like why do they need a regulation about drones and what might that mean about the future? So, for example, if you read in the news, as um, I did recently, that China is um, creating a simulated Mars colony and sending teenagers, um, you know, out to a simulated Mars colony, say, hmm, why would China be doing that? Or when you read about a farm where the cows have 5G connected smart collars so that rather than being milked on a schedule, the cows can somehow like choose when to be milked and they're managed by these smart collars. All of these are signals of a future that we might be inhabiting one day. And then once you have identified signals, then you learn about drivers. So the other big concept is this concept of drivers. So drivers are forces of change that are driving us, that are moving us in a particular direction. So every signal has at least one driver. So signals are very specific things that we can grab onto, they're tangible, you can see them. Drivers are forces. And so, for example, um, the Institute for the Future, in fact, identified nine global trends um, that are driving us towards the world in 2030. And so these are all of them drivers. Globalization is a driver, um, urbanization, um, greater transparency in organizations, the climate crisis, pressures on resources and greater scarcity, um, clean tech, technology shifts, as we mentioned, um, global policy and populism, uh, just as we've been experiencing in our political life. These are all um, nine trends or drivers that the Institute for the Future identified. And so would you think it would be logical to think that the pandemic would be a 10th driver? The pandemic is a powerful driver. Emerson, when I think about all this, it makes me realize my title, Director of Distance Learning, did not exist before this pandemic. And you know what? I have in the last month been contacted by three or four other directors of distance learning in the, in the local area who want to collaborate with me and talk about how we do this job. Yeah, the, the point about acceleration that this, that Mr. McKee made really resonates with me how much things have changed in six months around the jobs that need to be done in schools and how students access their materials. And Mr. McKee talked about the industrial revolution from a hundred years ago and how much it shifted the way school worked. And I can't help but think we're in another revolution right now. And we had the chance to talk to two more educational experts who also referenced 
past revolutions, past models of schools. And it really gets me thinking about what this moment means for the future of schools. That's right. The industrial model of schools that we've been living with for a long time came up in all three of our interviews. So not just head of school, Mark McKee, but also two educational experts and authors, Julie Wilson and Grant Lichtman. And I think that's because we've, we've talked about that over the years, but now what you're seeing in the pandemic, not just what we're doing to move from that model toward innovative practices, but what we're also able to let go of. Yeah, everything's up in the air now. Everything feels like it's doable all of a sudden. When, before the pandemic, it felt like you were moving mountains sometimes to change classroom practice or to change the way students thought about school or parents thought about school. And now everything is possible. Even this class, right? Even this class. Did you think we'd be teaching an online podcasting class with students from different grade levels as an English elective, allowing them to pick topics of the future to study and share their voice about? I don't think that was on our radar. It wasn't. So let's hear a little bit from Julie Wilson. Hi, everyone. My name is Julie Wilson. I'm the founder and executive director of the Institute for the Future of Learning and an instructor at Harvard's Extension School. So the world of work and the world of school are both based on industrial model. But there is some remnant of an entity out there that says we're working roughly nine to five and the kids are in school roughly from eight to three or whatever that time frame is. And the world of work has been moving towards 24-7. Smartphone accelerated that significantly. There were people already working from home uh, before COVID. Uh, the, as you know, the school model, uh, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not schools should be in session during the summer or not. Again, that's another scheduling artifact that we have inherited. And with all of the technology that we have at our disposal, do people need to work 40 hours a week? Uh, It's getting to be more like 50 or 60. It it feels like the more technology helps us, the more pressure we're putting on ourselves to do more, do more, do more. And there has to be a breaking point. And there's part of me wonders, is COVID helping just to shine a massive light right now on the, on the breaking point? I think one of the biggest challenges and opportunities that we have with COVID, uh, to be blunt, a significant function that schools have performed up until this point is custodial care. The kids have gone to another location while one or two caregivers have gone elsewhere to work. That is significant. So. We're now faced with what what, what I think many educators know, which is online teaching isn't necessarily online learning. And if you take a typical school schedule and just try to put that online, it doesn't work. It really is the shift, I think, in reorientation from online teaching to online learning. And can we give teachers the permission and the bandwidth to do that? and the support and the resources, knowing that this might be a very different way of teaching and a different approach uh, to one that they're typically typically used to. My biggest worry as a, as a teacher and for, and for students' well-being is that let's, let's say we all go back to 
we have a, we go back to school, we have a vaccine, we have the ability to return to quote unquote normal, um, that everything returns exactly the way it was before is, is, a is a worry I have. And I, and I don't know about our student listeners, whether they, what change they would advocate for, but I'm wondering if, if you had a magic wand and, and wanted to see innovations um, or, or change that you think is, um, is due um, or overdue for schools, what would you wanna see change um, in the future of schools? Sure, so I, I think we will be forever changed as a result of the pandemic. I don't think it's going away anywhere soon. And I think there will be some very visual remnants of it. For example, mask wearing, you know, will we continue to shake hands and hug the way we used to, just as an example. Uh, A big change I would like to see, and we're seeing a little bit of this already with several uh, colleges saying they're no longer requiring the SIT, is a complete rethink and overhaul of the school's system of assessment. My hope is assessment is forever changed as a result of this experience. And I hope colleges are forever changed as well. As a, as a high schooler, uh, myself, way back in the day, <clears throat> it was all about acing the test. You know, give me the shortest distance between where I am and getting the A, and I will be strategic and I will do it. It never really occurred to me, you know, what is it I actually want to learn? And how will I know if I'm making progress in that learning? <clears throat> and that's the case for too many kids. And the system perpetuates it. The system rewards it. Whereas if I would ask myself, what am I interested in? And how would I know if I'm getting mastery? You know, it's, in, in many ways, I think we've strayed too far from what used to be the apprentice model, where you get to work with a, a master uh, at their craft. And, and, and again, uh, this, this was something that you were personally interested in and you would get relevant, timely feedback, and you'd be able to do something with that uh, once you'd had that, that, that period of learning. So I hope we move away uh, from testing for testing's sake and really move towards much more meaningful assessment methods. I do know that we need to, and ideally my hope would be the education system would support and nurture this, which is more agency, more self-direction, more uh, risk orientation because if you can't take a risk at age 14 when can you take a risk it it really saddens me that as a 14 year old you're so focused on is this good or bad on my resume mrs cole that type of thinking is what really gets me excited about the future of schools when i think about what is worth learning what's worth teaching what are we what are we doing every day when we ask students to now log on to Zoom school or come to Zoom school? What are we, what worlds are we opening up to them that they may not have seen before or thought of doing before? And how are we nurturing that? And have we gotten too far away from that type of goal when we're prepping for SATs or AP tests? Not that assessment isn't important, because well, it is. It, of course it is. But there are many more ways to do it than I think we may have been considering before the pandemic. I don't know if you've noticed, teachers are talking about assessment all the time right now in yes. meetings I'm in. Yes, I agree. And the thing that I still wrestle with, that I think I will be into the future, is that thing about when do we 
allow students all the choices in the world of what they want to learn versus how do they know what they might want to learn if they don't even know it exists? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you, not everybody gets to do things they like to do all the time. That's right. You've got to try. You've got to try to learn that subject, which you might not be excited about trying until you get in the class and you read the papers and you listen to the conversation and you think this is something I might want to do. And that's, it's a purpose of school. Um, it broadens horizons And sometimes I wonder or worry if we're not doing that well enough. Are we, are we, are we, when Julie Wilson talked about box checking or being, some students being afraid to take risks in high school, um, that gets to the heart to me of things we might have the opportunity to change right now um, as everything is turned upside down. Yes, I get really excited about that. Yeah, and our final interview um, is someone that, it didn't take a linear path through education. It didn't didn't start thinking, this is what I want to do. Um, this is where I want to be. There was a much more winding journey. And I think that's a good introduction to to him and to his, his journey. He wrote a book actually called Hashtag Ed Journey, where he visited lots and lots of different schools and works with them about how they might change what they're doing. This was pre-pandemic. And he became really interested and fascinated in schools through a long journey or to to schools and other work he did and that life and work isn't linear and I think that's a good good reminder right now as we think about schools and the future of schools. Right. I think Grant Lichtman is somebody who has kind of followed his interests, his questions, the mm-hmm. wonderings that fascinate him and mm-hmm. it's it's led to a very successful and exciting career that happens to be all about education. Hi, my name is Grant Lichtman, and I have led a fairly winding road to get to where I am today, and I won't try to delve into each of those twists and turns. I grew up uh, in Northern California. I went to public schools. I graduated from Stanford with a bachelor's and a master's in marine geology. I worked in the for-profit world, including a stint uh, with a very small company that happened to have a relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev before the fall of the Soviet Union. I got out of that uh, world and uh, got into education because I was so passionate about the transformational nature of education. I worked at a large independent school in San Diego as a senior administrator for a dozen or 14 years. And since 2012, uh, I've been essentially on the road. And what I think I do is to help school communities build both a comfort and capacity for change. I've had the privilege to visit and work with uh, thousands of education community stakeholders at something north of, I don't know, 225 or 250 schools around the country, Canada, uh, somewhat around the rest of the world. Uh, And I've written four books about education and try to share my experiences. I I, I, I'm just a transmitter of what it, what is out there. I try to gather, uh, synthesize, and share what's what's happening in education and what's potentially can happen uh, in, in education as we face these the challenges of a rapidly changing world. Recently, I asked you if you would consider yourself a futurist, and you shied away from that. Can you tell me what type of thinking you do about the future of schools? Uh, I think. Futurists uh, look 
way into the future and come up with big, uh, bold projections about what the distant future might look like. But what's interesting about the future is it's a rather infinite term. Uh, the future is the next minute. The future is also, you know, a uh, hundred or a thousand years uh, down the road. I, I do feel that I have been able to uh, push people's horizons of thinking about the next maybe three to 10 years uh, and specifically translate that into the field of education. I'm curious, when you look back at the past in schools, what clues, if any, do you see that help you imagine what you think is yet to come? Well, well, sure. I think the the past is does have to be taken as a uh, at least a partial guide for the future. And if we look back over the past, you know, roughly 150 years, where education, certainly in America and to some extent around the world, has been made more accessible to a broader range of the population, uh, you know, since sort of the a shift from the agrarian age to the industrial age, uh, we do see some things that are very important. Uh, it's really important that we learn a certain amount of content uh, uh, that, that, that helps us uh, as we get through life. Uh, and that, that, uh, hasn't, uh, that's not going to change. We know that uh, learning is enhanced by strong relationships. Uh, that's not going to change and uh, that's going to we, that needs to be enhanced and evolved as we go forward, as the world changes around us. And, you know, another thing that we've known for a very long period of time uh, is that we learn deeply, most deeply through, through experience. Uh, the students who are listening to this podcast, uh, I, who, with whom I've, you know, sat and interviewed thousands over the last few years, uh, they will very boldly tell us that they don't learn as much when they're just sitting there listening to a teacher preach at them in the classroom uh, in their little hard seat at their little hard desk as they do if they're actively experiencing something, sort of getting their hands dirty with something around which they can find a passion and dig into it more deeply. So, you know, some of those things from the past are absolutely going to guide us in the future, but it, it, those, that, those combinations of, uh, uh, of content and relationships and experience are going to look very different. In this time right now that we're in with so much distance learning, there's a lot of talk about the importance of educational technology and also STEM as an important field for students and for future careers. I hear you talking a lot about the importance of relationships and relational learning. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you foresee in the future as the role of technology and computers in the advancement of education? Well, I think all of us see that in the future, computers will increasingly do what computers do well. Uh, and that's a really important thing for our students of today to understand, um, especially those who are looking at STEM fields, which are the largest percentage of, of, of jobs out there now and likely will be in, in the future. But there's a wide range of STEM jobs even. Uh, programming, for example, is something that is going to, uh, that has exploded over the last decade in terms of job uh, possibilities and good, well-paying jobs. But that's the sort of thing that AI is going to increasingly do uh, well and will replace humans uh, over time, or whether that's in the next decade or two decades, it's certainly going to happen. Uh, we want to prepare our students to do what humans can do well. Uh, AI is not going to ever probably be very good at being empathetic. 
uh, for example. It, AI will not be as creative as humans are. Uh, I'm just reading a book right now about how combinations of humans and computers can beat the best computers at chess because humans can provide strategic thinking in a way that even computers can't do and that AI will struggle to do. So if I understand you correctly, it sounds like you're saying that robots are never coming to take over the jobs of all teachers. There'll always be a place for teachers. Well, I hope so. I uh, do think that there will always be a role for humans in school. Uh, one of the things that we are learning now is the toxicity around just interacting with technology and not having human-to-human -human contact. And uh, if there's anything that I want students to understand, uh, uh, students your, uh, your age is that uh, being able to interact with other human beings is probably the most important life skill to learn and you don't learn it if you're pegged to your phone all the time. In Hashtag EdJourney, a roadmap to the future of education, you wrote about your three-month solo road trip across the United States where you discovered so many positive things about today's K-12 schools. Even then, you said um, you said that education was undergoing a period of, of what you described as dramatic evolution. And that, of course, was before COVID-19. I'm wondering, in light of the pandemic, how your thoughts are changing about the evolution of education. I think all of our thoughts have changed about the evolution of education in the last uh, seven or eight months. But uh, I think the most concise response I can give you is that uh, for some time, uh, many of us have felt that the, the, uh, what, what is pressuring schools to change is the rate of change in the world around us. And it is absolutely objectively true that in many, many ways, the world is changing more quickly than it ever has uh, since, since humanity has been around, which is you know, several, several million years. Uh, Many people had a hard time understanding what that rate of change meant. They had a hard time understanding what an exponential curve is. We generally think of, an, of exponential curves around things like uh, changes in technology. We know that technology, uh, the rate of evolution in technology has followed an exponential curve, that the, uh, the, the speed of a computer and the amount of memory that a, a, a machine can have doubles roughly every 18 months, which is and has been for the last 25 or 40 years, and that's an exponential curve. But we see that same curve in population growth and rates of deforestation and increases of CO2 in the atmosphere and you know uh, all, uh, uh, the, the degradation of the middle class in America. Frankly, it's probably not an exponential curve, but it's a pretty frightening curve. Uh, you know, many people didn't really understand what that meant until about six months ago. Uh, and now, because of the pandemic, we see these the the what what a virus how a virus transmits around the world, and that is an exponential curve. And so, the what I think more people understand now is is the the rate of evolution uh, is becoming frighteningly fast. Uh, in what some people have said, uh, it exceeds our ability to adapt. And that's a pretty scary thing. It's something that humanity has never really dealt with before. And so the pan what, what the pandemic has done <clears throat> is it's forced schools to stop thinking about the rate of change as science fiction and realize that it's, it's reality. It's actually reality that 
was predicted. We didn't know that it would be this particular virus or this particular pandemic that would cause this rapid rate of change in how we live our lives and how our economy works and how our schools work. But it was easily predicted that something like this was going to happen at some point in the fairly uh, near future and, and now in, the, in our past. What's that meant for education? Uh, for decades, uh, as long as I've been around and I think those who preceded me, we've had this sort of idea that changing a school is like shifting the, the direction of an aircraft carrier. It takes a very long time. It's very hard to do. Uh, well, guess what? Uh, that myth got exploded and busted in about two weeks in March of 2020. Many schools changed literally overnight or in a week uh, from how they did school before the pandemic and to how they're doing school at, you know, last spring or, or now. When we all turned to Zoom and other platforms and realized that we could learn from each other in relation-rich ways. It wasn't just having to Google something on the internet and believing what somebody else said, but we could actually interact as human beings. Uh, 10,000 people could interact with 10,000 other people to share 10,000 good ideas. And that technology uh, is, is ex has exploded uh, in the last just five years and will continue to explode at an exponential rate. And so the, the, the sectors that allow us as human beings to communicate in ways that we've never communicated before through virtual reality uh, and those sorts of things are going to profoundly impact education because at the end of the day, education is about one generation communicating to the next generation what they feel is necessary for that next generation to lead happy and successful lives. Uh, it is about communicating and we have just a completely different uh, playing field than we did even uh, 10 years ago. Hey, Mrs. Cole, so after talking to these three people, what do you think about the future of schools? Are you optimistic about what the future might look like? I think as hard as it can be during a pandemic to look forward to the bright side with optimism, that actually... It's the pauses that we've had to talk, to listen, to connect with these people that we might not have without this working from home, learning from home. And so I'd actually say, as counterintuitive as it seems, I'm more optimistic than I have been. I'm the same way. I, I feel like it's, like you mentioned, it's concentrated the mind on what is most important. I've heard teachers talking about connection and relationships within the classroom in ways that were always there, but that have come to the forefront when we're thinking about what is most important in schools. Content, for sure. Challenge, yes. But none of those happen without that relationship building that is kind of magical about being in a classroom and being in a school building. And the pandemic has really given us a chance to put a spotlight on what are we doing to make sure we cultivate and build that? Because we're not in the same space. We can't take it for granted. And I think it's really brought out some great conversations about how we're using class time and for what purposes. Do you remember back in 2018 when we talked about that crazy notion of, of hybrid learning and distance learning coming to viewpoint? We said that if we did it that way, we'd want to start with face-to-face -face first 
mm-hmm. so we could build mm-hmm. relationships. Yep. Because you said to me the other day, a school has a building, many buildings, but and it has a structure. But the most important thing are the people and the relationships. Yeah, it is. It's it's a just group of people, a group of learners. I mean, when you think about, and I challenge our listeners to think about transformative learning experiences or learning experiences that stuck with them. Sure, it was probably some content that lit them up inside. There was something that drew them to that topic. But my guess, it was something about the relationship with the teacher, with the students in that class, um, with experts or outside um, visitors that came and opened up a new world to them that really made that learning stick and stay. And that that relational piece is, I think, ironically, something that is much more pronounced during the pandemic than it has been. And it makes us think about all the types of things, or makes me think about all the things that are mentioned in these interviews about how you build lasting cultures of learning within individuals and within institutions. You know, I'm really excited that that through this class and through these next episodes, we'll get to hear students who completely chose a topic of their own design and and hear their passions. Yeah, we haven't even much been talking about like experiential learning, like doing things as you learn them rather than just answering questions on a test. I mean, this class is a great example of researching something that you care about, talking to experts or we outside of your everyday interactions, and then putting together a project that the world will hear. And that type of learning being um, just much more sticky um, when you're able to do rather than just read or regurgitate facts. I'd say the students in our class were almost like in in an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so... If you're listening now, please come back and listen to the episodes from our young futurists.